Mathematics is all about a mindset shift. Here, math becomes a lens through which we see the world more clearly. Math is a vehicle that takes us to exciting new places. It's a medium through which we can experience life with more freedom and power. Come stand here with me at the edge of math. Let's throw the gates wide open and take a little journey together. I'm Amy Buchanan, your host. Welcome to Mathematics. Welcome to the Mathematics Podcast. This is episode five, Multiplicative Reasoning, part one of three, is multiplication repeated addition. That's what we'll be talking about today. So I've laid out a plan for these podcast episodes deliberately, building from the mathematics we learn at the start when we're young. So we did an episode on counting, then moving on for three episodes of additive reasoning, and now it's time to move to multiplicative reasoning. And I've got three episodes planned for multiplicative reasoning. This is a whole other operation we're going to open up and explore today, multiplication. These three episodes are going to be another sprawling mini-series. There's a lot to cover. But to summarize, we're going to explore multiplication in all its glory. What is it? How does it behave? What is its inverse operation? And what kinds of numbers does that open up for us in our number system? And woven throughout all of this, as usual, is how do we learn and how do we teach these things? So as to the question in this episode's title, is multiplication repeated addition? You might be like me and have a knee-jerk response of, well, yes, of course it is. But as you listen to this episode, you might find, also like me as I dug into it, that there is a significant argument to be made for the answer, um, no, actually, not really, at least not in its essence. Multiplication turns out not to be repeated addition. Multiplicative reasoning certainly bears some connection to additive reasoning, but we're going to discuss how multiplication is fundamentally different from addition and how important it is to understand why. This episode is dedicated to Keith Devlin, a contemporary mathematician and author of many books about mathematics for a popular audience. He's connected to this particular episode because of a series of online essays he posted about a decade ago. And as you're going to discover today, he's the person who got me to stop saying multiplication is repeated addition, because that's the thing I used to say a lot. At least I don't say it anymore without clearly qualifying that statement by explaining its limitations. So this episode begins with a little bit of a story. And I will end up talking about the nature of multiplicative reasoning, but we're going to get there the long way around. We're going to get there by way of a discussion about something called order of operations. Before we get started today, let me just remind you that if you like the podcast and are interested in receiving more information about upcoming podcast episodes and courses we're going to be offering and free resources available to you for your own learning or teaching of mathematics, please visit our website at mathematics.com. That's M-A-T-H-E-M-A-T-I-X-E-D.com. to hang out in various math teacher groups on social media. And a topic that comes up a lot, actually, is what is the deal with order of operations? How should we teach it? Should we even teach it? And I guess overall, why is it the way that it is? To answer this question, let's take a look. Order of operations pertains to which operations take precedence when we're evaluating a mathematical expression. So the operations in question being addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, exponents. And there's a certain order that they get put in. And it's pretty much the reverse order of what I just listed. Exponents come first, 
exponents are the little number that tells you how many times you're going to multiply a number by itself, the little superscript after a number. Then multiplication and division, which, spoiler alert, those are both the same operation, well, they're inverses within the same family of reasoning. And then comes addition and subtraction, which, for a quick review of my previous episodes, those are actually also both the same operation as each other, or they're in the same family of reasoning. So the order of operations I've listed so far would have as its acronym first E for exponents, then M and D for multiplication and division, then A and S for addition and subtraction. MDOS so far. And then on top of that, if we want to override the order that would play itself out as we've listed MDOS, we might want to impose our own order by bracketing off portions of the operations to do those first. And we give that a P for parentheses. Some people use G for grouping symbols because there are others like brackets or different ones like the division bar. But in any case, we would put that G or traditionally the P up front to note that we always consider what's inside those first. And so our acronym becomes PEMDAS, P-E-M-D-A-S. Okay, enough background. What happened on this one particular Facebook post where somebody had asked, what is the deal with order of operations? Was that I had given my traditional answer I was always used to giving, which is that the operations build on one another in this way. So you have addition, that's sort of the weakest. It's just a way of consolidating counting, like instead of three plus five being one plus one plus one plus another one plus one plus one plus one plus one, we lump those together and just call it three plus five. Then multiplication is repeated addition. As in, if I have five plus five plus five, I can write that more quickly as three of the fives or three times five. And then exponents are repeated multiplication. If I have five times five times five, I could write that as five raised to the third power. So exponents are the most powerful, so to speak, and then working down to multiplication, then at the bottom of the list, the least powerful operation would be addition. Now, I still think there is something to this, this idea that the operation of multiplication binds its numbers together more tightly than addition, and that exponentiation binds the numbers even more tightly together. Some people say that the PEMDAS order is pretty much conventional, which, yeah, it is a convention, but I don't think it's arbitrary. I think it's related directly to the nature of these operations, sort of like I've laid them out here. If you try to go through a typical math expression and change the order, maybe you do the addition and subtraction first, then multiplication and division, then exponents. What would that be? PASMD. <laughs> it just really turns out weird. Try it sometime on an expression involving multiple operations. I honestly am not sure. Maybe it's because I've been conditioned to look at expressions a certain way. Maybe it wouldn't be weird to assume that we do addition first and then have to put parentheses if we wanted to multiply first instead of the other way around. It is a trail of thought I would love to explore further, and probably I will on some future episode. But really, all of this, I'm just trying to set the stage for today's story. And the story is that whenever I hear questions about PEMDAS, boiling down to why is it the way that it is, my go-to answer has always been, well, addition is the weakest operation, and then multiplication is repeated addition, so like more powerful addition, and then exponentiation is repeated multiplication, so like more powerful multiplication, and hence we do them in order from the most powerful, the E, to the M, which by its nature includes D, and then the A, which by its nature includes the S. And I had posted this on a Facebook post, pretty much in those words. And then in one of the replies I received from another commenter, it was just a link to an article by Keith Devlin entitled, Multiplication is Not Repeated Addition. And I'll link to that article and actually a couple of other related articles that he wrote in the show notes. My initial reaction to that statement was, what on earth? I mean, of course, multiplication is repeated addition. That's how it works. We can write five plus five plus five, or we can condense it by realizing that we have three of the fives and write it as three times five. That's how we teach it. That's how kids learn it. That's what it is, isn't it? 
I felt like that title, though, was such clickbait, I couldn't resist. And besides, I admire Keith Devlin. I actually have several of his books and I had read them. And so I needed to find out what he meant. So I went and I read the article. And the first time I read it, I came away with not much changed in my mind. But I did start to think more deeply about, or just remember, that multiplication is, and I'm putting that in quotes, multiplication is also other things. There are multiplicative scenarios that don't really lend themselves to repeated addition. Like, I might have a rubber band. Devlin uses the example of a rubber band. Say my rubber band is five inches long. Well, that's a big rubber band. I know. Make it five centimeters. That's probably more like an average rubber band. Anyway, the length of my rubber band is five units. And then, say I'm going to stretch out that rubber band to three times its original length. This is qualitatively different, much different, than having three five-centimeter rubber bands that I lay end-to-end. Three of those rubber bands laid end-to-end would make me think five plus five plus five. But to triple something by stretching it, that's a different kind of thought process. That's something we call scaling, and it doesn't lend itself naturally to this idea of five plus five plus five at least not as naturally. Because sure, we can do the calculations that way to figure out what is three times as much as five, because we could see that there would need to be three fives in comparison to just one five. But there's no actual real world experience of having three individual fives represented somehow in the physical world. There's just one object and it's now longer and we want a way to describe how much longer. Still, I thought, okay, But why does he have to say that multiplication is not repeated addition? Some scenarios do lend themselves to thinking about it that way. And for those that don't, we can still calculate it that way. Surely we could say that multiplication is not just or not only repeated addition without having to say that it is not repeated addition. After I first read the article, I thought about this for several weeks and I talked about it with multiple people and I was still clinging to my insistence that multiplication is repeated addition, if maybe also other things, simply because repeated addition is one of the things that works to multiply, but it was still nagging at me. And it led me down this path of exploring what multiplication is, And I went back and studied things I'd studied before, things we're going to talk about in this episode, about five types of multiplication. And then I went to the common core standards we use to guide us as we teach multiplication throughout the elementary school years and how those unfold. And then I thought about my classroom experiences with middle schoolers, of whom way too many don't really understand when to use multiplication and when to use addition. And then I actually began to question even the unfolding of the standards. And then I went back and reread the article and it started to make a lot more sense to me. So for the rest of this episode, I want to talk about what multiplication is and why it might not be a good idea to say or to believe that multiplication is repeated addition. So I'm going to start with those five different conceptual meanings of multiplication. I'm going to use five categories. There is some overlap between them and each of them contains some sort of subcategories as well. But what I'll do is I'll go through these five in the order that they first appear in the Common Core Standards. The five categories of multiplication. First up, we have the idea of equal groups. So some number of groups of some number. In the Common Core Standards, this is introduced into the standards in second grade. There are a couple of standards with the heading, Work with Equal Groups of Objects in Preparation for Multiplication. So the second grade standards have us working with numbers up to five groups of five objects and writing expressions for those using addition. And there you have it, like repeated addition, right? Like if there are three rows of five, we could write that as five plus five plus five. I found it surprising to note when I re-familiarized myself with these elementary standards that actual multiplication is not even included in the second grade. 
In my mind, I had remembered the up to the five by five part, but I thought that actually introducing the notation for multiplication was included in second grade as well. And it's actually not. When I think back to my own childhood, I have a distinct memory of learning multiplication facts in the second grade. But also, to be honest, I was in a second, third split class. And so maybe I was picking them up by listening to the third graders lessons. Or maybe we were required to learn them in second grade. I'm not sure. In any case, the idea being that pedagogically, at least in terms of common core standards, we are building the idea of multiplication upon repeated addition. Now, this runs contrary to Devlin's article, right? And in his writings, he does talk about getting a lot of backlash from elementary teachers when he first stated, multiplication is not repeated addition. And so the teachers all say, wait a minute, but that's exactly how we teach it. And Devlin does say how, you know, repeated addition is a way you can perform the calculations associated with multiplication. And he does somewhat defer to teachers and elementary educators regarding the pedagogy to some degree, knowing that this is not his area of expertise. But he insisted in his essays on this, that students should not be told something that is not true, and that repeated addition is not the nature of multiplication, so we should not say multiplication is repeated addition. And more on my thoughts on this will continue to unfold. But for now, suffice it to say that it does seem to my understanding that this repeated addition is the typical starting point for teaching multiplicative reasoning. Now, is this embedded into the very nature of the development of mathematical reasoning in humans? Perhaps. We need to count before we can add. So maybe we need to add and then transform that into multiplying. I'm not entirely sure at this point in my own research, but let's see how this unfolds for today. I wanna to open up the second category of multiplication here. So in this is in the order that they appear to be explicitly taught in the Common Core Standards. And the second category of multiplication is going to be what we're going to call the array slash area idea. This is the other conception of multiplication that begins to be introduced in second grade. Now, interestingly, I mentioned equal groups first because there is a nod to that in the title of that section of standards. It uses the words equal groups in the title. But I do find it interesting that the standards themselves actually don't say work with equal groups of up to five by five. They specifically state that the student should be able to look at an array of up to five by five objects and then write an addition sentence with repeated add-ins for the rows or the columns of the objects arranged in the array. Now, an array just means that you have objects that are organized into a rectangle with easily identifiable rows and columns and an equal number of objects in each. And the significance of this is that it transitions into understanding area. Because if you have that rectangle of objects, Area would just be like surrounding each of those objects, if you picture them arranged in a rectangle. If you surround each of them with a unit square and the squares are all adjacent to each other, sharing borders, and then you realize that if you just count up all the squares in that rectangle, the amount of squares is going to be equal to the product of the lengths of the rectangle. In the same way that the amount of objects is equal to the product of the number of objects in a row and the number of objects in a column. So if you have 15 teddy bears arranged where you've got three rows and five columns, we can talk about that as an array. You add up the teddy bears by saying you have five plus five plus five, and there's your 15 teddy bears. Or we can square out those squares around them and then consider the area of that rectangle that they are filling to be three units down by five units across, and then that is going to be 15 square units. So since area and array are closely related, we can sort of merge them into this one distinct meaning of multiplication. And the second grade standards have this showing up in two different ways. 
First is the one I already mentioned, an array with anywhere up to five rows and five columns, where students would see and record that as a repeated addition scenario. And then secondly, there is a separate geometry standard for area that wants students to be able to take a rectangle and count. They don't even mention adding in this standard, let alone multiplication, but to count how many unit squares there are within that rectangle. So if you have a three by five unit rectangle, just visually gaining an understanding of covering that two-dimensional shape with unit squares and then knowing that you can count up how many it takes to cover it. Technically, that's more of just an understanding of what area is rather than how to calculate it multiplicatively. But since area is inherently multiplicative and being able to understand the covering of a two-dimensional shape in unit squares is a prerequisite to understanding area multiplicatively, I'm including it here in the progression of multiplication related standards. And I suppose technically the idea of looking at an array, so like those three teddy bears by five teddy bears and repeatedly adding the amounts in rows or columns is not fully multiplicative either. But the writers of the Common Core did use the phrase gain foundations for multiplication. So we've gone through second grade standards and discussed two meanings of multiplication so far. That's equal groups and then array slash area. We're standing here at the threshold of third grade. And I will say that the first meaning, that equal groups idea, it does come directly into play in the third grade when we see that students in the standards need to explicitly represent a situation of equal groups as multiplication, such as the example written into the standard is that if you have five groups of seven, that's the product of five and seven or five times seven. There is sometimes a question regarding the order in which we write a multiplication expression, which number is the amount of groups and which is the amount in each group. Traditionally in the United States, we teach students to see the multiplication sign and say groups of. So five times seven would be seen as five groups of seven. And I find it interesting that this is actually sort of formalized here in this particular third grade standard and the way they use this language of so many groups of some amount. My understanding is that in other parts of the world, it's not necessarily the case that multiplication is interpreted in this way. And even with some teachers in the United States, some people prefer to teach students to see it this way. Five times seven means five seven times. So if you place that in the groups of context, five would be the amount in each group and seven would be the amount of how many groups that you have. But we've also used language that is more multiplicative in nature. We're using the very idea of so many times as big rather than just adding up a bunch of equal groups. I suspect this would be something that Devlin might prefer. Now in passing, one could bring up the fact that it doesn't actually matter which order you consider the factors in because multiplication is what we call commutative. So it goes both ways. Seven groups of five does have the same amount total as five groups of seven. For practical purposes, it might matter. Like if we were gonna place 35 cookies onto plates, if we're going to place five on each plate, we would need seven plates, rather than if we were going to place seven on each plate, we would only need five plates. I do want to be sure to mention with the numbers themselves, if you're asking a student to model either scenario, there is not, in my opinion, a wrong way to write it. You can write five times seven, or seven times five for either way, and they are both correct. I don't think we should get bogged down in requiring students to interpret one of the numbers to be the groups and the other to be the amount in each group. But all of that is somewhat beside the main point here, which is this. I do find it interesting that it seems to be such a widespread practice to teach students to automatically say groups of, so that five times seven means five groups of seven, that language kind of keeps us thinking of seven plus seven plus seven plus seven plus seven. And maybe, maybe this is hindering us. Even if we realize because of the commutative property that we could also think of seven groups of five, 
So that would be five plus five plus five plus five plus five plus five plus five. We're still stuck thinking additively when we use that groups of language. Maybe we don't work hard enough to develop other alternative language for interpreting a multiplicative statement, such as the language that would look at five times seven and think of this as five seven times or five made seven times larger. This is getting into Devlin's complaint. We do not want students thinking that multiplication is just a special case of addition. That's really important. Maybe it's fine to start students off thinking of multiplication scenarios that lead them to add repetitively. But if students get stuck there, they're not going to understand what multiplication actually is. Again, we do not want students thinking that multiplication is just a special case of addition because it's not. It's not a subset of addition. It's very much a new and powerful operation of its own. Not to get ahead of myself, there are standards coming for this with other language and other concepts we're going to build around it. But I wonder whether we might be stuck on this groups of idea and we're not teaching those other standards effectively or as effectively as we should. But while we're still here in third grade, we should note that the idea of one number being so many times as large as the other, that scaling idea, it hasn't really come into play. The other third grade standards that relate, they do develop this area slash array idea further. In the geometry standards, they want a third grader to be able to identify the length and width in whole units of a rectangle and to know that the area, the amount of squares that would cover that rectangle is equal to length times width or the product of those two numbers. So throughout second and third grade, we have several standards that cover these first two meanings of multiplication. The one where we have equal groups and the one where we have an array or the area of the square units covered in a rectangle. So ideally, students exit the third grade and come into the fourth grade with at least those two understandings. And in the fourth grade standards, we find ourselves encountering another meaning of multiplication. We're going to again here, we're gonna combine two related ideas into one meaning, and we're going to call it scale slash multiplicative comparison. There are maybe some nuanced differences between the two, though they're pretty intimately connected but they actually roll out in different years within the standards. Multiplicative comparison is the language that's used in the fourth grade standard. In that standard, we're asked to have students understand that 35 being five times seven means that 35 is both seven times as many as five and five times as many as seven. Now, I will note that the actual standard just uses what we sometimes call naked numbers. The standard doesn't specify that this should be contextualized in real world examples. But to the best of my knowledge and experience, pedagogically, we should always find ways to connect naked numbers like this to real world examples that we can visualize. So we might be looking at a tree that is five feet tall, and another tree that is 35 feet tall. And then we want to know how many times as big or as tall the larger tree is. This has the advantage of actually using the word times, which is what we say when we see the multiplication symbol. And I think we really need to draw on the meaning of that word, how many times as big. The challenge with multiplicative comparison comes in a couple of ways. For one, it's not intuitively obvious that we would have seven of the fives. So we can't just easily fall back on that idea of repeated groups that we've established. I mean, we can imagine stacking seven five foot trees on top of each other. And we could even use this as a visualization for how to do the calculation if we want. But, and here's where Devlin's objection started to make sense to me. That's not inherently what's happening here. I mean, we could ask a question about how tall would it reach if we stacked seven five-foot trees on top of each other. That's more like five groups of seven. But this is a different type of growth. It's a different type of thing going on. It really is a type of scaling. And that language comes in in fifth grade, and I'll get to that in a minute. 
If you picture the five foot tall tree standing next to the 35 foot tall tree, there's no actual amount of seven of anything. It's a multiplier, a scale factor that explains the relationship in a multiplicative way when you're scaling a number up. This is hitting again at the heart of what multiplication is. And if you're stuck thinking additively, it can be confusing to think about the five foot tree and also the 35 foot tree next to it. And maybe just think you're supposed to count up all those lengths of fives, which is actually a total of eight fives. You've got one five over here and seven fives over here. Or for a slightly different take on this problem, what if you were talking about a single tree that becomes seven times as tall? How tall is it now? Again, if you're thinking additively, it can be easy to confuse this. In that case, you might end up thinking about six of the fives because if you're just considering the part that got added on, you're just going to be more likely to get confused and think you have six fives being added on and think that's the growth versus the comparison number of the five to the 35. How many of the fives are embedded in that 35? There are actually two fourth grade standards that flesh out this idea of multiplicative comparison. So there's the one I just described, and then there's one that further asks students to use a variable in place of that comparison factor, like five times a number n is 35. What's that missing number? And then it includes this phrase about distinguishing between multiplicative comparison and additive comparison. And I just wanna park here for a minute on this one because this is what I, and I think a lot of middle school teachers have seen, is that students largely do not have a grasp on this. If we want to increase a five foot tree in a way that relates to the number 35, we can do this in two very different ways. We can start with our five and add 30 feet for a total of 35 feet, or we can have it become seven times as large for a total of 35 feet. That increase relating the two numbers can be additive or multiplicative. And it is hugely significant to understand both and to have that language for both and the meanings behind both. If we look at these numbers a different way and say that the student is given the number five feet and the number seven, meaning seven times as large, a student who does not understand multiplicative reasoning is just as likely to take the five and add the seven to get 12 and have no sense of why this is incorrect for the growth. So again, distinguishing, you've got five and then a growth of seven and distinguishing between are we adding that seven or are we multiplying by seven? Two very different things. I personally feel that these few words at the end of that fourth grade standard about differentiating between additive and multiplicative reasoning is one of the most underrated phrases in all of mathematics education. And honestly, it's not even really the main point of that standard. It's kind of like an afterthought in the context of being able to use a variable to demonstrate a scenario, such as the ones given. Is it five times n or five plus n? I would love to see this standard centralized, this being able to distinguish those two operations, adding and multiplying, and then what's that reasoning that's associated with them. But let's go back to this main idea of multiplicative comparison. In the fifth grade, we bring that understanding into a standard that includes the language for scaling. There are a couple of standards here to look at. The first one, this is a fifth grade standard. When I dug into this, it gave me a fresh look at the development of the reasoning here. So whereas in the fourth grade, we want a student to interpret five times seven as something that compares the five to the 35. In fifth grade, we want students to be able to compare, and I'm quoting the standard here, the size of a product to the size of one factor on the basis of the size of the other factor without performing the indicated multiplication. So my interpretation of this is that if we have students looking at a product of five and seven, we want students without actually performing the multiplication five times seven to be able to speak of this as we are creating a number that is seven times as big as five or five times as big as seven, either way you wanna look at it. Now, ideally students would already know that that amount is 35, but the concept can be used for the product of any two factors. So if you're seeing, oh, I don't know, 324 times 58, 
A student would understand and can speak of this expression as representing a value that is 58 times as big as 324. Now, this scaling idea seems like sort of the same thing as the fourth grade standard of multiplicative comparison, but there is a little nuance to this distinction. In the multiplicative comparison idea, your focus is on the two numbers being compared, the 5 and the 35. Whereas in the scaling idea, your focus is on the number that connects them, the scale factor itself, that factor of 7. At least that's how I see it. So we want students to be able to interpret the multiplication of any two numbers as starting with one number and then resizing it or scaling it. I was about to say scaling it up, but it might not always be scaling it up. Whether that first factor is getting scaled up or down actually depends. And that leads me to the second fifth grade standard related to scaling. And that has to do with multiplication of fractions. So on this podcast, with sort of the story arc that we started with additive reasoning, we talked about whole numbers, and then we talked about their negative counterparts, the integers. And so far, that's all we've discussed as far as the existence of numbers. And we haven't really talked about fractions yet. I'm going to slip them in here for today's discussion. But I want to pick up that story arc and get a bit more formal about what fractions are and where they fit in the grand scheme of things next time in episode six. But just taking fractions for granted today, this fifth grade standard about multiplying by fractions is one of my very favorite. I'm super passionate about it because it is a huge cornerstone to understanding how numbers work. It is huge. And I love it because we're not talking here about the technicalities of computation involved with multiplying fractions. This standard bypasses that entirely. In this standard, we're just using conceptual reasoning, no calculations involved at all, which might be a relief. A lot of us get nervous when we think about the process for multiplying fractions. How does that work? Why? But we don't even have to think about that process here. In this particular standard, we're asked to make sure students understand this, that if you take a number and you multiply it by a factor that is greater than one, that number increases. So five times seven, that five's getting larger. Now we're stipulating here that we're working with positive numbers. And if you take a number and multiply it by a number that is less than one, the number decreases because that multiplier number that's less than one, it shrinks our original number down. Notice we're using one as this reference point. That number one, when we're multiplying, has a special name. If you've listened to earlier episodes, you might remember that there's a special name for zero because zero is the number that you can add to any number and have that number retain its identity. Five plus zero is still five. Well, when multiplying that number, that identity number is one. We can multiply any number by one and that number retains its identity. Five times one is still five. Therefore, one is the multiplicative identity. And from that grows this beautiful idea about examining our factors to find out what's going to happen when we multiply. If I have five times one, I get five. I've scaled the five to itself, matchy matchy. Now let's say I'm going to start with five and I'm gonna take that five times, oh, say nine eighths. Without doing the calculation, I can see that nine eighths, and if I know that the number nine eighths is a little bit bigger than one, because one would be eight eighths. So if I multiply my five by nine eighths, the product, the result I get, is going to have to be a little bit bigger than five because I have not one of the five, but a little bit more than one of the five. And conversely, if I'm going to take my five and multiply it by eight ninths, well, I have myself a fraction there, eight ninths, that's a little bit smaller than one because nine ninths would be one and I only have eight ninths. Therefore, I know that my product, the result will have to be a little bit smaller than five. And as another sneak preview, this actually works beautifully the other way around with division once we start dividing fractions. When I divide by a positive number 
greater than one, the result must be smaller than the number I started with. And conversely, it must be true that if I divide by a fraction smaller than one, my quotient, my result, must be bigger than my starting number. You guys, this is huge. This understanding helps with so many things. Checking for reasonableness of your calculations, for sure. But also, this again is helping to understand what multiplication is, how it behaves, and how one, the number one, is the pivot point for multiplication in this way. With multiplication, the scaling idea, the idea of starting with one factor and then reducing it or enlarging it by the other factor in a multiplicative way, this really helps or is almost even necessary to effectively extend the concept of multiplication to fractions. I mean, you can try to talk about four thirds times eight ninths by using repeated addition, but it really gets awkward. And you know why? Here's, here's why on a conceptual level. The nature of fractions themselves involves division. Four thirds can be thought of as four divided by three. And see, here's the thing. Division itself is a multiplicative concept. You can have four thirds of a group that is size eight ninths. You can't really count four thirds of a group in the same way that you can count five whole groups. You have to divide it into three groups and then take four of them. Even if you want to think about it additively by thinking of four thirds of a group as one whole group, three thirds of a group, plus one third of a group, you still have to divide the other factor, the eight ninths, into three equal groups to find a third of it. And that itself involves a multiplicative type of reasoning. You really can't get away from multiplication when you're thinking about fractions because fractions are little division problems which means they are multiplicative by nature. This is why multiplying fractions together is actually a smoother process than adding fractions together. Because with multiplying fractions, each fraction is already a little mini division problem and you're just forming one big happy cluster of multiplication and division. It just sort of gloms together. Whereas with adding fractions, you're trying to bridge this conceptual gap between addition and then the division that's embedded in the fractions. And that takes some extra thinking to make sure you get it right with common denominators and all that. Division and addition don't mesh together in the same way that division and multiplication do. So anyway, we'll get more into fractions and division in upcoming episodes, but this idea of scaling slash multiplicative comparison, we're building that up ideally, according to the standards between fourth and fifth grade. Okay, now there are two more multiplication meanings left that I'm going to get to, but I think at this point we've hit on what I believe Keith Devlin would think of and what I now think of as the main idea of multiplication. And that is this idea of scaling. I personally feel like I've only scratched the surface on the research about you know what best pedagogical practices are to have students experience these concepts at various stages and how to make them unfold. I've been working with early elementary students quite a bit in my role as math coach recently. And my sense is that we can and should, at the very least, be introducing the concepts of twice as much of a number and half as much of a number, much earlier than we might if we were strictly following common core standards. Now I'll talk more about this, particularly when we go into fractions next time with the idea of half, but these are words that are by their very meaning multiplicative in the scaling sense and not the equal group sense talking about the words twice as much and half as much because they have the connotation of growing and shrinking more so than counting up how many groups of something we have. I guess by this, I'm calling into question whether we should wait until as late as fourth grade to formally think about scaling scenarios. Because if we follow the standards of spending a couple of years reinforcing the idea that the time sign means groups of, that might be part of the problem. And I'm personally gonna be doing more research to find out about this, to see what I can find. But I will say on a practical level, students understand twice as much and half as much quite well. And I'm talking second and even first graders. And I think that we should take advantage of that and be using that language earlier on. 
But then, regardless of whether we're introducing scaling ideas about multiplication in the second and third grade, even if we are going to wait until the fourth and fifth grade, the situation remains that many students just aren't getting there. So my other thought here is, let's find ways in those fourth and fifth grade years to really emphasize those standards where they come up learning the language and the meaning of scaling and intuitively understanding factors and how they operate together to create these products in that fundamentally different way than the way that add-ins behave when we're finding sums. And directly comparing those two things, like in that thought of more of those fourth grade standards that wants us to focus on the distinction between multiplicative comparison and additive comparison. I think that's an area that we could definitely grow in providing our students with those sorts of experiences. So even as written, a student that has achieved the fifth grade standards would conceive of multiplication not only as repeated addition that kind of goes with those equal groups ideas, but would also have broadened their understanding to encompass the nature of multiplication as an operation with factors that scale each other up or down. And that's the crucial part. So to reiterate, it may be true that the best practice is to do as the second grade standards suggest and work with equal groups as the foundation for multiplication. But even there, I don't love the language. I don't love calling equal groups the foundation for multiplication because it's a little too much leaning toward thinking additively as in group plus group plus group and not thinking in that scaling way how many times as many as one group do we have? Devlin has converted me on this point. I think it's important that we get it across to students that while we might repeatedly add for calculation purposes and in some contexts, the core meaning of multiplication is more about scaling. How many times as many of one do we have as the other? And not to forget the area idea as well, because that's a conception that is also important to understand as it relates to multiplication. So we've covered so far three meanings of multiplication, equal groups, array slash area, and then scaling slash multiplicative comparison. And now we're ready to move on to number four, which is rates. Rates really come into play in the sixth grade. You've got many standards covering the idea in sixth grade of finding a unit rate, which is a type of ratio, which is when you've got two separate quantities, that's a ratio. And I don't mean by quantities, I don't mean two numbers, but like words for the categories you're keeping track of. Like you might have a ratio of cost per pound. You're keeping track of the cost, the money that you pay, and the pounds or the weight of the item that you're buying. And those are the two quantities. And how are they related? They're related in this way that for each pound you buy, you will pay a certain amount of money. That's the unit rate. And the quantities are the cost and the pounds. If five pounds cost $35, then the cost per pound is literally the cost divided by the pounds you get. That's $35 divided by five, which equals seven, $7 per pound. Now my seven, my rate, that becomes a multiplier that I can use to find the cost per any amount of pounds. So two pounds would be my $7 per pound times two or $14. 10 pounds would be my $7 per pound times 10 or $70. So a rate is one number with two quantities embedded into it. The fact that we divide to find a unit rate gives you some indication of its multiplicative nature. Just like with the naked numbers and fractions, a rate is really a type of fraction where you've got those quantities associated with it. You've got those units. And when you divide, that becomes a new unit, as in dollars per pound. For another example, we often divide distance by time, say miles per hour. And then we call that rate that we get, we call it speed. If I get in a car and travel 100 miles in two hours, I've traveled 50 miles per each hour on average. 100 divided by two miles per hour gives me this 50. Now, assuming that I'm traveling at a constant speed, I can use this rate of 50 as a multiplier to find out how far I will go for any amount of time. 
in 10 hours, I will have gone 500 miles, 50 times 10. In one half an hour, I will have gone 25 miles. That's 50 times one half. So in sixth grade, we are using unit rates as multipliers to solve problems. And then in the seventh grade, we formalize this idea a little bit more by giving a unit rate the title called constant of proportionality. The constant of proportionality just means that it's the number in a proportional relationship that relates one quantity to the other multiplicatively. So in other words, like I said before, when we were calling it a unit rate, we're using it as a multiplier. That constant of proportionality literally is the unit rate. It's another name for the same thing. It's just looked at differently. When we are calling it the unit rate, we are looking at the 50 as so many miles divided by so many hours to get the amount of miles traveled per each one hour. When we are calling it the constant of proportionality, we are looking at 50 as the number we can multiply the hours by to get the number of miles traveled. So we would be able to say that the distance is going to be equal to 50 times the time measured in hours. Proportional reasoning is just taking multiplicative reasoning to this new level involving these constant rates where we are keeping track of two distinct quantities like miles and hours and tracking how they relate to each other in this multiplicative way. So to follow this multiplicative thought all the way through middle school, I will just mention here that understanding proportions is a large part of the standards of seventh grade. And particularly some of those standards are about graphing those proportions on a coordinate plane. So you have whatever your X axis represents and whatever your Y axis represents. Those are your two quantities where the X axis is one of your quantities and your Y axis is the second quantity. And that slope really becomes that number, that multiplier number that relates one quantity to the other. We want to be able in eighth grade to determine the number in the equation of a line y equals m times x, where that number m is the number we multiply x by to get y. First of all, the standard asks them to derive y equals m times x for a straight line through the origin, with m being the slope of a line. And then we also want to be able to take a line that is shifted a little bit up or down so that we have what's called the slope-intercept form of a linear equation. y equals m times x plus b, where m is the slope, that's our multiplier number, and b is the y-intercept, that's our additive number that we've shifted the line up and down by. Now, if that's not familiar to you, that's okay. I just want to mention it here because we are coming full circle in a way to this idea of additive change versus multiplicative change. Both of those things are happening in that equation, y equals mx plus b. And once again, this is something that eighth graders struggle with. It's a challenging concept and it's made more challenging when a fundamental understanding of how addition works versus how multiplication works is lacking. Often students will end up studying y equals mx plus b and they'll see that m and that b as something arbitrary just to memorize instead of having a sense of how those things behave in expected ways. Slope as a rate, it's a multiplier. It belongs as the coefficient, the multiplier next to the variable x. b is something additive we've sort of tacked on after we've done our multiplication. And how those behave on the graph is something that will develop out of our understandings of those two different types of reasoning, additive 
versus multiplicative. So bringing it back, this concept of rate, that's our fourth idea of multiplication, it will come up again as we explore multiplicative reasoning in these next few episodes of the podcast. But for now, those are the highlights that take us through a huge portion of elementary and middle school math, four areas of multiplicative reasoning, which are number one, equal groups, number two, array slash area, number three, scaling slash multiplicative comparison, and number four, rates. Those really cover most of the multiplicative reasoning you're going to find explicitly stated in the school math as outlined in the Common Core State Standards. But I can't end the episode without referring to a fifth way to conceive of multiplication. And interestingly, I didn't really find it referred to directly in any of the Common Core standards. It has to do with combinatorics, which is a fancy way of saying the science of counting. And it's significant in many different probability scenarios where we have combinations of different ways things can happen. Multiplicatively, it comes in when we want to know how many ways there are of doing two separate things. So if there are three ways to do thing A and five ways to do thing B, the total of all possible outcomes, if we're going to do thing A and thing B, is going to be the product of three and five or three times five. For a concrete example, suppose you are offering ice cream cones and you have three three types of cones. Let's say you've got those flaky wafer cones and then those crunchy sugar cones and then the really thick, yummy, big waffle cones. Okay. And then you've got five types of ice cream. Let's have Rocky Road and chocolate chip mint and boysenberry pie and bubble gum, not my favorite, (laughs) and vanilla. Okay. So altogether, you're going to have 15 different combinations that you could create for your ice cream cones. Now that's assuming you're just going to get one flavor per cone, which I mean, what kind of ice cream cone even is that? But then if you're going to offer multiple different scoops, you can do some more multiplying to find out those combinations. So again, it's not something that's explicitly stated in the Common Core Standards that I could find. It does show up sort of tacitly in the probability standards of seventh grade, because a part of the seventh grade probability standards is finding the probability of a compound event by using things such as organized lists, tables, and tree diagrams. That's the language from the standard. So let's say we're going to say that your ice cream cone selection was what we would call a compound event, wherein you're going to first select one of three types of cones and then select one of five types of ice cream. You can imagine that making a table to represent all those combinations would be sort of like an array representation. You've got three rows for your cone types and five columns for your ice cream types. And then you can combine those together into the sort of cells in the spreadsheet if you were doing it that way. And then you would recognize that this would be a three times five type of scenario, a multiplicative scenario. Or if you were to make a tree diagram, another representation with like branches representing, you start out with three different choices for the three cones. And then from each of those three cones, each of those has five branches underneath it to represent that subsequent putting of the ice cream on each cone with all those choices. And then you end up with a total of 15 different locations you can end up at the bottom of this tree branch thing. Well, this reminds me of an equal groups way of thinking about it, where each subsequent choice creates a group belonging to the previous choice. So there's five choices if you have selected the first kind of cone, there's five ice cream choices if you've selected the second kind of cone, and the same five ice cream choices if you've selected the third kind of cone, if that makes sense. So that's kind of another way of looking at it. But this whole idea of combinations is really a distinct scenario in itself. And so I just wanted to mention it here as such. So there you have your five different multiplicative scenarios. 
And I've tried to lay those out throughout this episode in a way that really shows, first of all, how they're laid out in the Common Core state standards, and then my own comments on how that relates to what Keith Devlin wants us to focus on, which is not to limit the idea of multiplication to something that makes you think of adding over and over again, but to really deepen that understanding, broaden it, or maybe just recenter it would be a better way of saying it so that that core idea of multiplication isn't so much adding it's really scaling making a number grow or shrink and that is what keith devlin means when he says multiplication is not repeated addition it's a complex concept its own new operation that we need to think about in these broadened, deepened ways if we're truly going to understand and teach others to understand what multiplication is. This fifth episode of the Mathematics Podcast has been brought to you by the number five, our third prime number, and a number that, being exactly half of 10, which is the basis of our decimal system, has all kinds of marvelous properties, including a simple final digit divisibility test of whether or not a number is a multiple of five, that is, whether said number ends in zero or five or not. And this episode has also been brought to you by Mathematics.com, where we envision a world with freedom and power for everyone through understanding math. Check out our online community at M-A-T-H-E-M-A-T-I-X-E-D.com. <laughs>